0: I'm Jody Melman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavan. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavan 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Today my very special guest is legendary American singer-songwriter Michonne Taylor. Having toured internationally with Pink Floyd, Foreigner, Sting, and Government Mule, Michonne has established herself as a woman who's passionate about singing, songwriting, the music business, teaching, and producing. We were lucky enough to catch up with Michonne during a recent break in her busy schedule to discuss her musical and personal accomplishments during the past decades. Michonne, welcome to Backstage with the Barnabas. Michonne Taylor, welcome to Backstage with the Barnabas. It's good to see you. Oh, great. Thank you, Jody. Good to see you, too. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yep. <laughs> here we go again. I know. Here we go again. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was getting ready for our interview, I got to watch a lot of YouTube videos of you. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, do you want to start with the past, or do you want to start with the most recent first? <laughs> you can
1: start anywhere
0: you want. <laughs> okay, well first, um, I'm going to start at the present and go backwards, because I really liked uh, the Babylon uh, video oh. that you made with your husband, Danny Lewis, yeah. and it was shot up at uh, the Hudson, at, uh, what's it, the, the Brickyards? The,
1: br- the Brickyards in Kingston, yeah, the old Brickyards. Um It's actually uh, now sort of a hotel um, that, uh, I forgot the name of the company that built this new facility, Mm -hmm. but when um, I was looking to put together that video for our song, Burn Down Babylon, you know, we were in the middle of the the pandemic. Right. And... um, You know, I was actually looking for a a really cool um, ruins um, to shoot in. And there are a number of places actually around um, the upstate area, but a lot of them are on state land. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult to get permission from the DEC to to go and and shoot a video. So I called the, the Woodstock film festival and um, they were kind enough to refer me to a few places and the brickyard was one of them and I called them up and and they were closed because of the pandemic and uh, it was a you know brand new property and they couldn't open for business so they said sure come on and you can use our our property our space and you know do what do, do
0: what you will so they were really kind and let us shoot there now yeah. you you've been a, a singer you've been you're also currently a professor of music at um, at NYU and also at the new school correct yeah and correct. when you look at this video not only are you the person who co-wrote the song, Co-produce mm-hmm. the song, but you're also the producer of the video. So for yes. those of you who haven't seen it, first of all you have to see it because it's really fantastic. But <laughs> tell me a little bit about the story behind it because it's so intriguing and it seems so relevant to what's going on in the world today. Yeah, well, thank you.
1: yeah. Um, you know when when Danny and I started writing the the song, which was sort of in in the summer, Of uh, gosh, I'm losing track of time. 2020, 2020, I think, right? I mean, you know, as we've spoken before, it's like we're living in the movie Groundhog Day, right? Exactly during during this pandemic. But yeah, so so there were, you know, a lot of really um, controversial things happening at the time. Trump was president. um, You know, the Black Lives Matter. Movement was on fire, and and literally the world was on fire. Mm. In in many ways, with protests going on and climate change issues, um, riots. Uh, you know, just so much upheaval happening in the world when we were writing this song, and so I really wanted to find a way because I wrote, I basically wrote the melody and lyrics. Um, you know, Danny kind of helped me flush it out at the end, but I kind of came up with the concept. And um, I wanted to talk about what was going on in the world, but not in a literal sense. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, hearkened back to history. It, when you look at the lyrics of Burn Down Babylon, it's, it's very uh, metaphorical and symbolic but it's not literal, not literally talking about Trump or talking right. about climate change or talking about the pandemic, but it's its all in there. And um, so the, I wanted the video to, to be reflective of that. So it's a very editorial video. You know, there's a lot of stock footage that's cut in. Uh, in between our little live performance stuff, because it's just Danny and I, you know, right. we, don't have, <laughs> we don't have a band. You know, it's really just us. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of editorial footage that's cut in to kind of reflect uh, the story, you know, of the lyrics of the
0: song. Now, when you teach yeah. songwriting to your students, what type of do you do? You... Uh, teach them to be metaphorical? Do you, you know, do, what technique do you use in order to, to have them bring out their feelings and what they want to express? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for anybody
1: that teaches songwriting, um, you know, the the great Pat Patterson out of Berkeley, um, who, and Jack Perricone out of Berkeley College, they're both Retired now, but um, they were kind of pioneers in the whole world of of teaching songwriting. And the most important thing, and I think the thread that's taught, uh, and the important point that's taught in any kind of songwriting class is um, show your audience, don't just tell. Mm -hmm. So it's really about how do you bring alive. Um, in your language, in your lyrics, and I'm sure that's true in, in most writing, is that you really want to bring the imagery alive um, to your piece, you know, whatever it is you're mm-hmm. talking about, right? So, I mean, you're a writer, mm-hmm, so you right. know this too. Yes, show, um, don't tell. <laughs> right, show, don't tell. So it's really about how how do you really dig down deep into your... Idea um, and really uh, share that idea with your audience in a way that um, may may be more universally communicable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want it to just be your own story and your own uh, your own little world. You want to be able to share it with your audience. So, how do you bring it alive? So, I think that's key show don't tell
0: <laughs> what are, what do you find your students are writing about what's what oh my topics goodness. are they covering yeah i'm
1: it's curious it's all it's all over the place it's um you know there are, there are those of course that are writing really um, entertaining pop songs so it's so you know of course the universal subject is love always right, right. relationships <laughs> love um and, and it and it runs the gamut. It could be very superficial kind of party style songs or it could be really about heartbreak and how, you know, when you think about college age students, you know, that's such a tender time in life. Um when, you know, I know for me as a young woman you know it was such a heavy thing to (laughs) to be in a relationship with a guy and it was like it was the end of the world if you had a breakup you know so um yeah so there's love songs but there's also um you know now a lot of kids that are talking about gender identity and their place in the world and how they fit in because there's a lot of a lot of kids that don't feel like there's a place for them in this in this time you know mm-hmm. how to fit in and there's a lot of conversation about um cultural identity in in America how does that work now um and and you know there's so many topics climate change you know and the future A lot of, you know, college students feel very depressed about uh, what the future means Mm. to them on this planet, and that's a very big concern, so, yeah, the topics run the gamut, and it's really um, wonderful for me as a teacher to see what it is that they're thinking about and talking about now amongst themselves Um, and in in a language that is different than my generation.
0: And that's a really good segue back to looking at your accomplishments over the years. I mean, you started uh, singing, and I mean, you left school when you were 16, and you immersed yourself in the music industry. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, you traveled with Glenn Miller, and you've worked with everybody from Pink Floyd. You were with Hiroshima or Hiroshima. It's like tomato-tomato. Okay, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know the Franklin and Billy Joel, I mean, you've really, and James Taylor, George Benson, you've really worked with the greats, and so you've been able to put, it seems like, music history and songwriting into a unique perspective. What can you hmm. tell me about songwriting then that you see, about the songs you were singing with Pink Floyd as compared to what you see these kids doing now? that's a really good question um well obviously
1: art any kind of art whether it's songwriting or painting or writing um it's reflective of the times so the times you know in my life when i was touring for instance, with Pink Floyd. So that was the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, the 80s was a very different time than the 60s and the 70s, right? So when you when you look back on uh, music of the 60s and 70s, you know, we had the Vietnam War. We had um, a very big shift in the American culture post-World War II and sort of the breakdown of the old 1950s mentality um, uh, of how, you know, relationships between men and women worked. Uh, it was a very different... Right, right. Thing. Well, that's
0: gender, that's gender issues.
1: And and it was really shifting big time in the sixties and seventies, right? We had the women's movement, we right. had the civil civil rights movement, we had um, you know, the the Vietnam War as I said, but you know, there was a lot of turmoil at that time. But cut to the eighties when I was touring with Pink Floyd, that was I think a time of uh you know the internet starting to happen um and the dot-com boom was just sort of beginning you know and then it really took off in the 90s but i think when i look at that time period it was money it was in excess <laughs> definitely excess yes you know, I saw a lot of drugs and a lot of craziness (laughs) happening at that time. Um, I even know people that worked on Wall Street at that time, and cocaine was a very big thing on Wall Street in the 80s, you know. So, I mean, it was a time of, yeah, it was a time of excess and, um, you know, prosperous, prosperity, Mm -hmm. you know, for sure. Uh, A lot of people were very prosperous in that time period. So, I think there was a lot of That mentality of partying and um, I don't know that people were so socially conscious. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe at that moment, you know. Um, Yeah, the eighties and nineties were really different, you know. But then it took a turn. Yeah. As as history always does, right? Things go in cycles. So here we are again. It feels like we're probably more like the
0: sixties and seventies now. It does feel like that. Politically, it feels like that on very many yeah. levels. And that's sad. Yeah. It's very sad. I mean, with the yeah. erosion of women's rights the the uh, and voting rights. I mean, it's just, don't get yeah. me started. <laughs> I know. I know. But, yeah, it's like we're
1: back in that, you know, we've come around, you know, to the beginning of a, hopefully, a, a more positive transformational time, I hope. Right, exactly. Yeah.
0: So, also over over your work history, you've written compositions that have been on television, and uh, like, can you give me an example? And that's been used um, on movies and TV shows. Yeah, I. You know, I. Let's name drop a little here, girl. Come on. Well,
1: um, yeah, I, I've been writing, I mean, now I'm not doing so much of this type of writing because my teaching schedule is so crazy, but um, in 1994-95, I started writing for a company called Sonaton, which is a music library company, and I have a, a friend who is a writing partner that I've done a lot of stuff with over the years his name is Steve Gabori and he has a a studio in New York City and and we wrote a number of projects for Sonaton and a lot of that stuff um, is primarily instrumental there is some vocal stuff too but we've had you know a lot of stuff used on Oprah when she was when she had her TV show um, and a lot of daytime TV stuff um, TV movie, radio commercials, um, uh, I had a couple of pieces that were used. One was used in um, American Beauty, mm-hmm. uh, which was an amazing film. It was an amazing film. Yeah. Alan really Ball, yeah. An incredible film. So, um, And then also, not too long ago, we had a piece that was in Boyhood, which was a Golden Globe winning
0: film, an Oscar nominated film,
1: an Oscar nominated. Yeah, exactly. So we had a little piece in that too. So, yeah, we've had our, our share of some
0: notable placements. In, so. when you work for a company like that, do they call you and say, "Hey, Oprah's doing a segment on you know uh, losing weight or baking bread. They need background music. Do you no. score? How do you? It's not different from scoring, isn't it? it's very different from scoring so so library music
1: is basically um these companies keep a stock of all kinds of music all styles um you know all genres all you know levels of production um, so it's like um it's a place where you where a producer or a, a music supervisor can go shopping Ooh, for, okay. for music. So so the music is already done. So a producer or music supervisor will go to these companies and they'll they'll say to uh, someone in the company, or they'll they'll be able to get into the library and look, shop around themselves, and they can say, okay, I need a piece for. Here's the scene, here's the situation, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, you know, either a producer from the company will, you know, say, okay, I've got this style that may fit. Mm -hmm. Or the music supervisor will find stuff for themselves that's applicable, you know.
0: So it's ready to wear. wear, ready to wear <laughs> ready ready to wear yeah i like that ready to yeah. wear yeah. ready to Very wear music
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's not it's not custom not custom made yeah. have yeah. you ever scored a movie um i've done a couple of little projects yeah not nothing you know uh you know big time mm-hmm. but i have done a couple little things and then i actually did my master's degree Um, at NYU in music theory and composition so I took songwriting classes and I took some classes in film composing so so you know for that I had to do a bunch of little projects too but um, yeah that that was never um, a goal of mine to to be a film composer it's it's an incredibly competitive world And, um, and I don't really feel like I have all the skills, um, such as, you know, orchestration and certain things that you need to, to really be a good film composer, you know, but it's not, it's not off the table.
0: (laughs) Well, if I know of any films that are looking for (laughs) someone to score them, I know who to call, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah, 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 you never know.
0: Yeah. So, your resume, I mean, is really very well-rounded in the field of music. And I was wondering, when you were on tour, if there were any venues that were really exciting to play? Because I'm thinking of one in particular that I saw you standing on a stage at this particular place. I thought, oh, my God. (laughs) And I want your answer before I told you which one blew me away.
1: Okay. Um. Well, a few come to mind. So, um, the Palace of Versailles Whoa. is is definitely very memorable. Um, that and, was with Pink Floyd.
0: Oh, that must have been incredible.
1: Yeah, it was the first time they had ever allowed such a huge show to take place on the grounds of the palace. And the way it was situated was the stage was set up across the parking lot from the palace. So when we were on stage, we were looking at the palace. Oh, wow, wow. And there were 100,000 people in between us, you know, in the the audience that night. And I remember um, so vividly, it was a full moon. And so there was a full moon over the palace And we were playing on stage in front of 100,000 people. And it was just an incredible experience. So there's that. But there's also, um, you know, I mean, we played so many uh, between Sting and Pink Floyd and Foreigner and, you know, a couple of big bands I worked with. You know, we all, we played stadiums and arenas and also theaters in some cases. So I do remember playing the Royal Albert Hall.
0: That was what I was thinking of.
1: With Sting, And that was also very memorable. It's a beautiful venue. And we played nine straight shows there. Wow. All sold out. So that was pretty memorable.
0: That's an yeah. amazing venue because it's, it's a hall, it's, but it's round. Yeah. And yeah. then behind where the stage usually is, there's a tremendous pipe organ. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you're on the stage, you're facing all of these boxes like you'd see in Downton Abbey. You know, the Queen's got a box. and Exactly. it's. I took the tour of it, a backstage tour, when, one time when I was in London. Um, and the way that they built, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but but Queen Victoria wanted something to memorialize her husband because she was very desperate after he died so she went to she didn't the the country itself didn't have the money to build the facility so what they did was she went to all of the famous and rich families and had them put up the money with the understanding that they would own a box for their entire life so some of the boxes that are there are still owned by the original families that helped construct the royal albert hall I did not know that. That's very cool. It's a very interesting, very interesting uh, place.
1: Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. Yeah, it really is. I didn't know that story though. That's great.
0: And there was another one that you mentioned. Um, uh, we, we we talked about the Versailles and Royal Albert Hall. There was another one uh, that you mentioned. Well, what, what about the garden? Have you played the garden? I mean, oh yeah, many times. Yeah, over the years. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, it's funny because Madison Square Garden is not that big. Right, it isn't. You know since since they built Madison Square Garden, which was it the sixties that they built it? I don't remember. Yeah, I think the early
0: sixties, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's twenty thousand seats. Right. Right. Since then, you know, there's so many arenas that have been built that are, you know, three, four five times that size so um you know but it is iconic it's an iconic building and and it's iconic venue to play so you know and it's New York City right right you you can't you can't beat it
0: (laughs) what is the most memorable small venue you played the most charming venue oh gosh that's a really good question (laughs) I don't I
1: honestly I don't I, I don't, on a small scale, I yeah. would not have been there with a, a big band. No, but know? just
0: you. I mean, even if it was like but, you and Danny or, you know, you've got a small gig. Some place where you just walked in and you said, gee, this feels like home. Oh, gosh. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind
1: is, you know, playing the Blue Note Club Yeah. Um, in New York. And yes. I've also been at the one in Tokyo So, and those are very cool because they are, you know, they're landmarks um, in the jazz, you know,
0: contemporary music world. But um, yeah, other than that, I can't think of anything in particular. (laughs) I wonder how the Blue Note is doing during these pandemic days because you're sitting on top of each other when you're there. You're literally in the lap of the person you're sitting next to.
1: I know, (coughs) it's crazy. But I did see someone on Instagram recently that, that played there last week, so they they are operating.
0: Wow, good for them. Yeah.
1: I know, I know. I hope they survive. All these, so many places, you know, haven't survived the pandemic, which is so sad. I know,
0: I know. Yeah. But hopefully, things will be getting back to normal. That's all we can do is know that eventually know. they will be. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Fingers Everything crossed. crossed. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about something else i discovered about you you are a certified vocologist yeah why don't you talk (laughs) about that a little bit you sound like you should be wearing a white lab coat (laughs) and you know (laughs) i know
1: it's funny um well you know when i was sort of on the my educational track you know because you know i went to school in my 50s I started my bachelor's degree (laughs) so you know I'm a late you were too busy
0: you were too busy before (laughs) that
1: exactly I was busy and I honestly I never (laughs) saw Royal Albert Hall (laughs) no I never imagined myself a teacher you know this is like this was a revelation for me to kind of come to terms with the fact that at a certain point I, I didn't want to be on the road anymore and I wanted to recreate my life. So, um, in going back to school, um, you know, I got my bachelor's degree and I was really uh, blessed that I was able to do it in two and a half years total um, because of a great program through SUNY Empire State. Mm-hmm. So, I did that and then I said, okay, well, I, I did that, but I don't think this is enough. So <laughs> I went on to my master's degree, you know, because I saw what was happening out there in the in the job market, um, and really now, in order to get a university position, they don't even want to talk to you without you a, have master's to have a master's
0: degree. degree. Right.
1: Yeah, and they prefer a doctorate. Right. You know, but I was very lucky that with my master's degree um, and my resume, I was able to. Uh, get a job and I even during the time I was doing my masters they hired me at the Clive Davis Institute at at NYU and now I've been there eight years so um, and then uh, I guess it's going on four years now um, I got hired at the the new school so those are my two go-to places and, (laughs) and between them I'm insanely busy which I'm very grateful for. Um, but anyway, um, because I did my Master's in Music Theory and Composition, I didn't do it in in voice oh, because definitely. they, they you know, I couldn't find a place that really offered a contemporary vocal program that I wanted to go to. So I did my Master's in Music Theory and Composition, but I wanted more. So, um, Dr. Ingo Tietze, who is uh, one of the leading vocal science researchers in the world. Um, he's in his eighties now. He, you know, he dedicated his life to this research and he offers this program in vocology and vocology is based on all of his research. And it's basically the, the intersection of, um, speech pathology, um, Laryng, uh, auto laryngology, and voice teaching, voice pedagogy, right? So it's sort of the intersection of all of those worlds, and his program that I got the certification in, um, it's it's teaching uh, the the science of the voice, how the voice works, um, vocal. Uh, maladies, if you will, you know, what can happen for singing and uh, voice professionals, you know, like, for instance, a lawyer or some, a politician, someone who is a professional voice user um, uh, can be very prone to having vocal injuries. So, um, so it, you know, brings all that knowledge in. And then it offers Uh, information on how to deal with um, vocal injuries Mm -hmm. to a certain point. So I am not a medical professional. You know, there is a point where I I refer people, I refer my students to an otolaryngologist Mm -hmm. or a speech pathologist, Mm -hmm. but I know I know enough and with my 20 years of teaching voice I know enough um, to recognize when someone has
0: issues that they need special care with. What type of issues do you recognize? I mean, what are some of the symptoms of people having, you know, uh, voice issues?
1: Well, um, you know, for instance, I can definitely hear, I can't diagnose, but I can definitely hear when someone has vocal injury that will be either polyps or nodules on Mm. the vocal folds. Mm -hmm. Um, I've run into some people that have MTD, which is muscle tension dysphonia. So there's a dysphonic, uh, you know, uh, pathology that's going on. So I can hear these things when they're happening with some people. Um, and if I hear something that is off, mm-hmm. um, I I won't say to them necessarily that I'm I'm diagnosing them with a particular condition, but I will refer them to the next level professional uh, to have it checked out and, I have to say that um, the times when I have referred people, there's always been something. Wow.
0: Wow. Yeah. Good track record. So if, yeah. if if you recognize somebody and they go for treatment, do, you, do they then come back to you for, uh, I don't want to use the word therapy, but for vocal exercises, yeah. that type of yeah. thing? Or do they go Absolutely. to a speech pathologist for something like that?
1: um sometimes um it's just a matter of them working with me continuing working with me and and once i know that they've actually gotten the diagnosis of you know nodules or polyps or something to that effect then i know uh how to better approach my teaching with them or it could be a case where they need to work with the speech pathologist for a while before they come back to me or they may need surgery right that has happened too right right you know I yeah. think about
0: John Mayer uh, Adele yeah. I mean yeah, those are, I, I think Kelly absolutely. Clarkson I think they all had vocal polyps I don't know about Kelly but Adele
1: had um I think she had two different surgeries for a vocal hemorrhage
0: mm.
1: so that's a vocal bleed what mm. we call a vocal bleed so it's when there's a burst blood vessel in the vocal folds themselves and it's a very bad situation i can imagine Um, yeah but it can be surgically treated um yeah there's i actually teach a class at the clive davis institute um it's kind of poorly named but it's called pop singing essentials and it's it's a fundamental vocal techniques class but i teach the science very fundamental science of how the uh, voice is constructed in the body, how it works, um, and just really basic stuff that, that is so important for singers that want to be professionals
0: uh, should know. It always amazes me when I hear someone like Mariah Carey or I hear Ariana Grande, you know, and they're doing these incredible vocal runs, and I yeah. just wonder, what are they doing to their you know, to their larynx and to their vocal cords. That could, without yeah. the proper training, it really could be horrendously damaging. Well, it can be, and there are a lot of
1: singers that do have damage from incorrect technique. You know, but the two people you cited are both trained singers. So right, you know. right,
0: yeah. And and I'm, I've seen John Mayer a couple of times, and I saw him before he had the surgery and afterwards, yeah. and there was a definite difference.
1: Oh, yeah. Definite
0: difference. He couldn't hit the high notes. His voice was softer. Um, I mean, maybe that was a product of age. I mean, but it was only within a couple years of him having the surgery. But there was a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping. I don't know what his story
1: is as Mm. far as what post-surgery, but I know that... He had a glanuloma and a glanuloma is like a, it (coughs) looks like a cyst. It's really ugly and horrible looking, you know, and he had to have that removed Mm -hmm. um, with uh, Gwen Corbin, who is a a very big, uh, uh, you know, uh, ENT in New York City. But I don't know, I'm hoping he got some vocal training Mm -hmm. after that, you know, because it's not. It's not uh, necessarily his technique, but I'm guessing that his technique prior to the glaniuloma and his surgery had something to do with him getting it.
0: Mm. You know. Yeah. Uh, of the the courses that you're teaching, what do you? What is most challenging? What course is most challenging? Oh.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think they're all challenging in the sense that. As a teacher, and I and I think you can relate to this too, you know, it's like you're a performer. Because yes. Because as, as, as a teacher, you have to bring the energy, you have to bring the excitement, you have to bring the material that is going to hopefully inspire your students. And, um, you know, bringing that kind of energy on a daily basis can be very taxing.
0: Yes. And, very demanding.
1: Um, it is very. It is a very demanding uh, profession. And, uh, you know, teachers are professional voice users, so I have to watch my voice mm-hmm. when I'm teaching because uh, when my semester is in full gear, um, the last two semesters I've been teaching six classes and 20 private vocal students, which is a very heavy load. Yes, yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, so my the, my spring semester is going to be pretty similar, but um yeah, I have to be mindful of my health, mindful of my voice and keeping my, you know, energy um to a place where I can bring the enthusiasm and the ins- hopefully inspiration, you know, to all my students. So, in that way, I think they're all challenging, but um but I think the, the, the newest class that I took on at the new school, which is called the Whole Human Artist, um, is a very interesting class, and that has been um, pretty challenging because it's considered a liberal arts course, and it's part of the core curriculum uh, at the College of Performing Arts at the new school. And I was very honored that they asked me to come on and, and teach it, um, but it's covering a tremendous amount of material and, um, it, and we're also co-teaching. So I have a teaching partner. So she teaches one day and I teach on another mm-hmm. day. So it's offered twice a week. And um, so there's a lot of writing. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of information covering. Um, sort of all of the aspects of what it means to be a working artist in the world, what that looks like, and whether you're an actor, whether you're a classical musician, a jazz musician, a contemporary you know, musician, because they're all in this class, so it's a, a, a very interesting combination of students. Um, Again, it's covering a lot of material and trying to help these students um, think about what is their life going to look like going forward as a living, breathing, working artist. And that's a
0: tall tale. It is a tall tall, tale. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's. I was just talking yesterday with a gentleman here in Poughkeepsie, and they're working on a project, or they visualized a project, to uh, revitalize the auditorium at Poughkeepsie High School.
1: And we were talking
0: about that because apparently the sound system doesn't work, I mean, just everything. Nothing works in the auditorium. And part of the reason they wanted to, to do the renovations was because they're looking at career paths for students now. And they're recognizing that the artistic life is a viable career path for students. Yeah, and that's a uh, that's a transition into exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely, yeah. It it
1: should be taken seriously. It
0: definitely. Um, yes, and you know,
1: even though unfortunately in America we don't have a government that that supports artists, you that's know, true. Uh, on a uh, maybe they do on a limited basis if you can get a grant or something, you know. But actually, I just read the other day, you know, sidebar that Ireland is going to be giving artists a salary for the next 3 years to help them recover from the pandemic. Wow. It's incredible. It is there incredible. Of, there are a lot of governments in the, you know, in Europe that do give artists money to help them survive and and continue making art because they see it as a valuable contribution to society, you know. And I wish our government felt the same. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, you look at the funding for the National Endowment, every year it's been slashed. I mean, people just don't exactly. see the arts, you know, as a priority. And it, yeah. it is. I mean, if you look at Broadway, Broadway brings, brings in billions of dollars. The movie Absolutely. industry, I mean, which has musicians and artists and visual artists you know billions exactly. and billions and billions of dollars worldwide and exactly. it is shocking that we don't that we don't recognize the value of the arts in our society and arts education yeah, exactly i mean you know maybe that'll change a little
1: now i mean post pandemic because What have we all been doing?
0: Listening to music and watching movies, right? Exactly, (laughs) and writing music and writing books and and exactly. And so, and who does
1: that? Artists. That's right. right.
0: That's right. (laughs) So, maybe
1: I hope there's some positive change down the line. You know, when you're teaching
0: this course, what is the the most uh, the question that the kids ask you the most about working as an artist?
1: Oh, God. Um, You know, it's all over the place, and it really depends on who's asking the question. But, you know, obviously, for me, a lot of singers and um, songwriters and musicians will say well how do you make a living right you
0: know how, how do you figure that out you, you see know? that restaurant over there you become a waitress <laughs> or a waiter well that could be part of it in the
1: beginning for sure you know i mean i was tremendously lucky you know because the time that i was you know up and coming um you know and danny and i talk about this all the time you know in the when we were coming up there were so many clubs at, because the drinking age was 18 right right so so there were so many clubs with live music that paid for musicians to play and um so we came up in that training ground it was such a great way to learn your craft you know and now it's so different now it's about social media. It's about YouTube and SoundCloud and, you know, artists have to understand the territory of the digital world. Mm. So, it's very different for kids up and coming now, but they've also grown up with technology. So, they're much more adept at, or adept, I should say, at adapting to the digital world. So, yeah, it's just a different approach, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Well, speaking of Um, digital world and music, Um, someone that we both mutually know, um, who's quite famous, passed away this weekend, and that was Michael Lang. Oh, I know. I know. And you and I had the pleasure of meeting him. I don't know if you remember that. We were talking to him about the possibility of creating the Woodstock School of Music, and that was four or five years ago. Yes, Quite a while ago. Had you had you met Michael before that or did were you meeting him for the first time like I was? No, I had met him before. I'm trying to remember if it was at Mountain Jam,
1: maybe, or somewhere in Woodstock. But also, you know, Danny knew Michael Lang from when Michael managed Joe Cocker back in the day. Right. And and Danny toured with joe cocker in the 80s right. you know so danny had a long relationship with him uh, so but yeah i mean he was so he was so sweet and he had that cheshire cat smile <laughs> yes <laughs> you know um i mean you just look at any picture of him and, and at any point in his life and he had that
0: that Impish. It was, he Impish was Impish, grin. yes, with that yes. gorgeous curly hair. No matter yes. what age he was, he had that gorgeous yes. curly hair and
1: exactly. he was
0: always full of ideas. I mean, here is a yes. guy who, you know, made his mark when he was in his twenties with Woodstock. Incredible. Yeah. And, and he
1: changed the music business. He, he changed definitely it. did.
0: Yeah. He
1: was such an innovator and, and <clears throat> brilliant. And a a very good businessman, obviously.
0: Yes, yes. And Uh he will be sorely missed. I know,
1: I know. So sad. Sad for him and his family. Yes. And and, because he he was still so young, really. I mean, now, as I'm getting older. (laughs) 77 is not that old. No, it is. It
0: was just like, whoa. I saw it on the news. I think it was Saturday or Sunday night. There was a runner. You know, on the bottom of the news, Michael Lang, seventy-seven. I was like, "Oh my god!" But then I, I saw that know. he'd been ill for quite a while.
1: Yeah, so, which he was. was sad. I know. I know some people that that knew him quite well, and yeah, he had been he had been ill for a while, and I'm I'm sorry to hear that he kind of suffered, you know, at the end.
0: Well, speaking of large festivals, yeah. um you've played a few fe- large festivals like Farm Aid oh oh with foreigner back in the day yeah you saw that video. yeah let's talk about that i mean that's incredible you or did you organize the the uh choir is that what you did yeah you know that
1: was my <laughs> gig you know i and it, when i look back at that time period it's like oh my god how in the world did i pull that off because i was in my 20s i had absolutely no idea what i was doing but um i had prior to that gig i had done a stint as a production assistant on the jackson victory tour Mm -hmm. and that was kind of a fluke too in 1984 you know the jackson brothers were doing the victory tour and a friend of mine was working as a production manager at giant stadium and he called me i was living in new york city and He called me and he said, what are you doing? I said, right now, um, I'm in between jobs. I don't know. And he said, well, why don't you come work at Giant Stadium for the week and be an assistant? I said, okay. And so (laughs) I Sure. yeah, whatever. It's only down the road. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I need to make some money. So, okay. So I did. And and I, long story short, I ended up doing the whole tour, which was six months. And, you know one thing leads to another always in business and whether it's music or any business. So I was so happy that I took that job because that led me to, um, and I'm trying to remember if this is the right order (laughs) of of, of events because it's so long ago now, but that led me to doing a gig with Pat Benatar because the production manager recommended me, but it also led me to the Farner gig after that, because someone I met on the Jackson Victory Tour. And so they were looking for someone to coordinate a choir in every city on, you know, for That's the whole incredible.
0: Tour. That's incredible. And,
1: and it was a world tour. So not only was it the United States, it was all of Europe and Japan. We even went to Israel and I can't remember where else um maybe Australia but
0: anyway it was a world tour and I, I had no idea what did, I was you have, to, what did you do pick up the phone to the local churches and temples and say hey you got a choir yes so no. I mean, you know we're, we're talking we're talking pre internet yeah right and there's that um, phone book
1: <laughs> yes and I literally had to pick up the phone and call universities and churches in every town that we were going to go this is pre-cell phone too yeah i was in an office you know two three months before the tour coordinating you know each city and when i was on when we were on tour i was still you know preparing for the next few months coming up, and then I remember I was mailing, you know, snail mail, tape, cassette tape of the song, and then the chart of the music, you know, it was so, it was crazy, I don't know how I pulled it off, honestly, and when I look back on it now, I I should have asked for a whole lot more money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) See, that's a lesson that you should tell your students when they ask you, you know, what is my career path in the music industry? Well, it could be, you know, making phone calls and getting coffee, but, you know, you never know where it's going to lead. You should write a book. You should write a book about your life. You should write a memoir. You've lived a fabulous life so far. thank you.
1: Thank you. Well, it's funny that you should bring that up because I ha- actually have started working on something. So I may be calling you for some <laughs> advice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because you have these, I mean, you just have these really incredible um, interplay between, you know, back, the backstage, the front stage, the traveling the world. I mean, very few people no. have, have walked in your shoes and it's fabulous. You're a self-made you. woman. Oh, thank you. I admire you. you. Yes.
1: Oh. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I think it's only when you get to a
0: certain age that you realize, oh, maybe I really did do something. <laughs> it's know. even better when you write it down and it's on paper. You know, it's like, whoa, and your resume is like three or four pages long, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I've been really lucky and I'm and I'm I'm at the point where I'm starting to realize, you know, how blessed I am so
0: yeah knock on wood <laughs> right well we've been very blessed to have you here with us today at backstage oh, with the bardavon it's always a pleasure to to chat with you Mushan. it's been really great
1: thank you thank you and I, I hope we i hope we get to see each other soon in
0: person <laughs> i hope so you were the last I, people we saw before this current uh omnicron disaster so i'm I sure know. that the summer as everything dies down we'll be back we'll be back together again
1: yeah, I hope so. Thank you, Jody. Thank Thanks you and so give much. my
0: love to everybody. Okay. And your husband. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks again to Michonne Taylor and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for supporting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can review it on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon.